But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed <clears throat> is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You know, it's been quite a week at, uh, at Covenant as we deal with uh, accusations and the things being said in the media and in uh, different venues. For those of you who are not aware, a few weeks back, our school administrators were alerted to the possibility that one of our teachers was uh, no longer married to her husband, but was instead engaged and involved in a lesbian relationship and openly supporting uh, the LGBTQ community. Um, I can't go into all the details of that conversation that took place between employer and employee that would not be appropriate or wise at this time, uh, but I do want to assure you as a church of a few things. Uh, first of all, not everything that is being said is accurate, nor for sure is it the full story. Uh, I do commend the news media and their attempts to contact us and get our side of the story. However, for now, we've chosen not to interact with them. It is not in the best interest of our ministry to engage in that forum. That may change in the near future. Secondly, uh, we have dealt and will continue to deal and communicate graciously and kindly with our former employee and those who disagree with our deeply held beliefs about God's design for human sexuality. And this is a priority for us, which is another reason why we have chosen for now not to defend ourselves or to answer our critics through the social media and the news media venues. Uh, thirdly, there is a team that has been formed that will answer to the session consisting of four elders and four members of the school board who are tasked with leading our ministry through this event. We are going to communicate to you the names of these individuals uh, so that if you have questions or if you have concerns, 
with what is happening and you want more information to be assured and comforted that all has been done properly, decently, and biblically, you will be able to speak to them and ask any of your questions. Finally, I want to remind you that Jesus, even in the face of his enemies, was full of grace and truth. So regardless of the the hate or the criticisms or the pressure that is brought to bear upon us, our desire is to first and foremost to be filled with God's grace and to show the love of Jesus Christ to those who disagree with us or maybe who even outright hate us for what we believe. And at the same time, I want to assure you of this, church, No matter the hate that haters express or the criticisms that are unjustified or the pressure that is brought to bear upon us, we will not compromise the truth of God's word. We will not. It is is incredibly unwise to build your morality and your code of conduct upon the vicissitudes of modern society, or your own personal opinions of what is right and wrong. There is a place in the universe where there is absolute truth. The scriptures are inspired by God, which means that the Bible is an errant. It does not err. It is infallible, which means that it cannot err. Therefore, it is authoritative and we can trust it in all matters that pertain to our life, to our morality, to our faith, and to our practice. So we will stand, hopefully like Christ, filled with grace, loyal to the truth, the only source of absolute truth that God has given us. Now, the good news from this week, and what I was very, very encouraged about this week, is it really surprised me, apparently the great number, scores and scores of people commenting in all of the different venues that apparently believe this book and the Bible, because why would you quote the Bible if you do not believe the Bible, correct? And so it was very encouraging to me as I continually saw people quoting Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. I wish I had a dollar for every time someone said, Judge not lest you be judged. So what was Jesus getting at there? Of course, what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 7, 1 is not a prohibition of exercising proper judgment and discernment. Not at all. In fact, one of the leading uh, scholars in the book of Matthew is Dr. D.A. Carson. He writes about this very well-known verse. This verse does not forbid all judging of any kind, for moral distinctions drawn in the Sermon on the Mount require that decisive judgments be made. What's he getting at? If you just go a couple of more verses to uh, Matthew 7, 6, you'll see that Jesus tells us to exercise judgment and not throw the pearls of the gospel before those who would despise it, denigrate it, and have no desire to hear it. 
You know, Romans chapter 2, the passage that we're in, the chapter that we were in last week and this week, also has a lot to say about judgment. If you didn't hear Brian's sermon last week, you should listen to it. He did a great job laying out before us in the first half of this chapter how we as human beings are flawed judges, but God is the perfect impartial judge. And then the very sobering reality that every one of us at some point is going to appear before God as our judge. In our passage, our current passage, Paul gives us a description of some people who actually do fit what Jesus was saying in Matthew 7.1. When Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, he was speaking to his followers and saying, listen, if you're going to follow me, I do not want you to live your life as these judgmental, hypocritical, condemning people who have these major sins in their lives, a log in their own eye, and they go and they pick at the speck in someone else's eye. That is totally inappropriate and wrong, Jesus says. To be a judgmental, proud, condemning follower. These are the people that Jesus is speaking of in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And it's this kind of person that is square in the sights of Paul in the second half of Romans chapter 2. So in our time this morning, what I want to do is I want to give you two gospel applications. One is a warning and one is a blessing, an encouragement that comes from the second part of chapter 2. Let's start with the warning. The warning is that God abhors dead orthodoxy and moralistic religiosity. Let's remember the context of this passage. Let's put it within the storyline of what's occurred so far. In the last half of chapter 1, Paul has begun to lay out the case for why we need the power of the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the power of God that only comes through the gospel. And as he begins to give us a case study, he starts with the Gentiles who are irreligious and they are immoral. They are given to idolatry and suppressing the truth of God, which they could easily see within nature and creation itself. And so as a result of this, and because of their suppression of the truth, he tells us that these irreligious Gentiles are already experiencing the judgment and the wrath of God. He's removed his common grace from their lives and from society, and so he's given them up over to their deepest, basest desires. So as a result, as you come to the end of chapter 1, the last five or six verses, you see that this judgment upon God in humanity manifests itself by humanity degrading itself sexually by turning God's design for men and women upside down on their heads and calling that which is good evil and that which is evil good. But what about religious people? What about moral, good people? Are we exempt from God's judgment, from potentially His wrath? Not so fast, Paul says. And so in chapter 2, here he turns and he actually uses maybe the best example of religious, moral people in his day, his own people, the Jewish people, and in their example, 
we see ourselves. You see, you can confess all the right truths and all the right doctrine, but if you do not have the fruit of the Spirit, if you do not have the love of Christ, if there is not a difference in your life filled with zeal and spiritual power, it's of no use. This is what is known as dead orthodoxy. And it functionally calls into question one's salvation. Beware of dead orthodoxy and moralistic religiosity, lest you find yourself in the same predicament as the irreligious pagan Gentile. This is the warning that he brings to us. And how do we know that this is happening in our lives if this describes where we are? He, in these opening verses, in verses 17 to 27, Paul gives us several characteristics of dead orthodoxy and moralistic religiosity when it's in our lives. He starts in verse 17, and it's a false sense of security and spiritual pride. He says in verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and you know his will and you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And now listen to the tone that he's using, the way he describes. This is how you see yourself, right? If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You know, I must hear Paul saying, wow, you think much of yourself, do you? But you see, this is exactly what was going on. The Jews of his day, they, they had been honored by God. We'll see this in the first couple of verses of chapter 3. They, they had been given the law of God. They had been given revelation about God that other people had not received. But rather than humble them and make them a light unto the nations, they had become puffed up, believing that they were just fine and better than anyone else. In fact, this went to such an extent that they believed, and the rabbis validated this in any number of ways, that it was impossible, for example, for a Jewish man who had been circumcised to ever go to hell. Didn't matter how you had lived your life, did not matter how much you had rejected the commandments of God, as long as you had been circumcised, they taught, Abraham will be at the gates of hell, preventing you from being able to enter in, because you've been circumcised. And so as a result of this, there was this incredible disconnect happening within the Jewish people, in spite of all that God says in the Old Covenant about pride and arrogance and how much this kind of condemning attitude is at odds with who God is and an abomination in His sight, the Jews looked down on every other nation and peoples, the very people they were to be a light to. One of the contemporaries of the Apostle Paul was the Roman historian Tacitus. And he, in one of his volumes, uh, addresses and describes what was going on in the Jewish communities throughout the Roman Empire of Paul and the Apostle John and Peter's times. And this is one of the things he writes. He says, uh, other reasons for their increasing wealth, the Jews, the wealth of the Jews, may be found in their stubborn loyalty and ready benevolence towards brother Jews. So far, so good. But notice how he concludes. 
But the rest of the world, they confront with the hatred reserved for enemies. How can you relate to people like this when you are filled with spiritual pride and a false sense of security before God? A second characteristic he gives, beginning in verse 21, is self-righteous hypocrisy and idolatry. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You know, Tim Keller makes a great observation about what he thinks Paul is doing here, and, and he ties it back into one of his favorite parables, the parable of the prodigal son. Just to kind of recap that, and the Jesus told a parable about these two boys, sons of a father. One was uh, an immoral, disrespectful young man. He comes to his father, says, give me my inheritance. His dad isn't even dead yet. How, how brash is that, right? And then he takes all of that money. He goes away, he runs, and, and it's like he goes to Las Vegas. I flew in and out of Las Vegas and spent the night there, and wow. It's like he, he went to Las Vegas, and, and what happened in Vegas didn't stay in Vegas, right? Because he just went nuts and he blew all the money and he ends up destitute, right? He's rejected his father, but at one point he finally comes back to his father and he repents and he's forgiven. That, that's, the, that's the irreligious son. And, and then you have an other son, right? The other son, he was a good boy. You know, he must have been the firstborn type A kind of guy who obeyed all the rules. He, he went to church. He did everything that the father expected. But as you read the story, you see that the older son also rejects the father, but his posture is one of spiritual pride and idolatry. And what's interesting in the story is that the irreligious son ultimately repents and is reconciled to his father and brought into the family we never see the older son repenting. And Keller draws the analogy that, that Paul in Romans chapter 1 and 2 is doing the exact same thing. You have the irreligious son, the irreligious Gentiles, and you have the religious son, the Jews who'd received the law. But guess what? Keller says self-righteous religion rejects God just as much as self-centered irreligion. You both end up in the same place facing the judgment of God. And, and this was nothing new, by the way, for the Jewish people. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, centuries before, says to him, Son of man, your people talk about you in their houses and whisper about you at the doors. They say to each other, come on, let's go hear the prophet. Tell us what the Lord is saying. So my people come pretending to be sincere and sit before you. They listen to your words, but they have no intention of doing what you say. Their mouths are full of lustful words and their hearts seek only after money. You are very entertaining to them, like someone who sings love songs with a beautiful voice or plays fine music on an instrument. They hear what you say, but they don't act on it. What a great description of dead orthodoxy and moralistic religiosity 
May this not describe us this morning, people. This is Paul's warning to us. You can be, you and I can be exactly like this, hearing the word of God, but with no intention of doing what it actually says. And these two things, this false sense of security and spiritual pride, this this self-righteous hypocrisy and idolatry, it leads to a third characteristic that's associated with this kind of of life, but it's, it's for other people. He says, beware, because when you do this, blasphemous accusations against God arise Verse 23, you who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We all know those who claim to be Christians, and maybe it even characterizes us at different times in our lives, where we claim to be Christians, but then we live in a way opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what kind of reaction does that create within those who do not follow Christ? Scorn, derision. They end up blaspheming the very Lord that we claim to follow. If it was really real, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't live like that. One of the sad things about this past week is as... uh, Catherine one night was reading to me and showing me different comments through all the social media and and different venues. Uh, Christians who were coming to our defense, but some of the things that were being said, I I just said, oh, and I cringed. I, I actually, just to be honest, I actually sent a Facebook message to a pastor and asked him, please remove your posting you are harming the cause of Jesus Christ with your bigotry and your hatred. Uh, by the way, I was never more proud this week than to see some of your comments and the graciousness that was there. You didn't rise to the bait. You didn't lose your Christian composure. And those of you who did comment, I want to commend you on seasoning your words with love and the salt of the gospel. That's what's required. Because if we do not do this, we open up this thing right here that Paul was talking about. We give opportunity to the enemies of the gospel to blaspheme our Lord and Savior. And may that be the very last thing that ever happens in this entire situation that we're facing. We want to see Jesus glorified, not blasphemed. A fourth characteristic that he gives here is a reliance upon religious activity for acceptance. You know, in verse 17, he starts out by saying, you know what, you call yourself a Jew. You you are proud about the fact that you have the law, and you even say you're relying upon the law. And the penultimate example of their allegiance to the law was their acceptance and their insistence upon circumcision. He says in verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What's he getting at here? He's saying, listen, you're relying upon all of your good works. The the best example of which is that you undergo circumcision and you apply it to your sons. and, And that's the good thing. If you obey all of God's law. Who of us has ever obeyed all of God's law? None. I mean, we don't even make it out of the Ten Commandments unscathed, (laughs) much less all the rest of the law of God. You see, 
humanity always reverts to moralistic religion, trying to earn God's favor and to earn God's blessings and eternal life through our own goodness and our own self-righteousness. How futile this is. Al Mohler, Dr. Al Mohler writes that human beings are natural-born moralists. And moralism is the most potent of all the false gospels. The language of values, character, is the language of moralism and cultural Protestantism. This is the religion that produces cultural Christians, and cultural Christianity soon dissipates into atheism, agnosticism, and other forms of non-belief. Cultural Christianity is the greatest denomination of moralism. And far too many church folk fail to recognize that their own religion is only cultural Christianity, not the genuine Christian faith. This is what Paul is warning against. This is the trap that the Jews had fallen into who had been given the truth of God's word, but they had fallen into the trap of dead orthodoxy or moralistic religiosity. And what is certain is that God abhors these two things. It will bring his judgment and his wrath just as certainly as irreligious idolatry. Now, that's the warning. Let's turn to the encouragement that he gives us. Beginning in verse 28, Paul begins to show us that, hey, let me encourage you, church, true Christianity It's first and foremost a matter of the heart, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Uh, Listen, we get real uncomfortable, especially in a mixed audience, talking about circumcision. I have a pastoral friend, uh, an acquaintance, a um, fellow pastor, who is uh, Italian. He says, I, whenever the subject of circumcision comes up, I grab the side of the podium because I am part Italian, and Italians talk with their hands, and that's not good when we're dealing with verses like this. Right? <laughs> uh, what, what is it about circumcision in, in these things? It, you know, circumcision was given by God to Abraham at the establishment of the Old Covenant. It was a sign of being a member of the covenant people of God, and it was a sign that the individual was taking upon himself expressing commitment to obeying and living according to God's covenant. It was also a sign that said, if I don't keep the covenant that I'm entering into, may I experience the curses of the covenant, and may I be cut off from the family of God. See, so from the very beginning, from the outset, the physical outward act was pointing us to a more important inner spiritual reality. It's the reality that Moses refers to in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. 
Why does God say that he will circumcise our hearts? What are you getting at here? You know, the heart is that, that inner aspect of humanity that is the driving control center of our lives. You know, and if you, if you look at the testimony of Scripture, let's go back to Ezekiel, who we quoted just a few moments ago. In Ezekiel 36 and 37, God is speaking to the prophet about us. And he says, here's how humanity is. You do, you, your heart is a heart of stone. It is a dead heart. In chapter 37, he gives us the picture of, of how we actually are born into this world. We're a valley of dry, desiccated corpses just bones, skeletons. There's no life in us when we're born into this world because of the penalty and the effects of sin upon humanity. Completely incapable of pleasing God. Completely incapable of doing any of the law of God for the right reasons. This is why we violate all the law of God and we do this naturally. He says you have a heart of stone But in verse 36, when he says that you have a heart of stone, but one day I'm going to pour out my spirit upon you and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, a heart that is alive, a heart that is beating, a heart that yearns for me, a heart that follows after me. And these dead bones, I'm going to pour out my spirit and baptize you and I'm going to put flesh and tendons and muscles and life into you and bring you into eternal glory. This is what he's getting at here. But how does it happen? How can our hearts be circumcised? How does God bring this about? The scriptures, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Do do you understand what he's saying here? This this whole metaphor of circumcision and and that's really what it's talking about is a spiritual reality that we need a new heart, a new life. How does he bring this about? By us participating in the circumcision of Christ. This is not a physical, biological act at birth. He's referring to the fact that Jesus Christ took upon himself all of the sins of his people. And he came before God and he endured God's judgment. He endured God's wrath. That Romans chapter 2 says comes upon this kind of blasphemous lifestyle and idolatry. And what happened to Jesus? He was cut off from God the Father in the presence. My God, my God, why do you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken? And Paul points out, if you want a new heart, you must participate. You must identify with that cutting off that Jesus experienced on our behalf when God made him who knew no sin become sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. And so the important question here is, how's your heart? What's your heart condition? 
Has this miracle of regeneration occurred in your life? Why are you here this morning? Is it to earn God's favor or because you've already received God's favor? Why do you obey the word of God and follow after the gospel? Is it to get from God or because you just love Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross? Hey, listen to, let's change the wording a little bit of verse 28. I know circumcision can kind of be funky for us. Maybe not quite as impactful in its meaning and what Paul is getting at. So can I, can I change the words a little bit? Verse 28. For no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is baptism outward and physical. But a Christian is one inwardly, and baptism is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. For no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is church membership outward and physical, but a Christian is one inwardly, and church membership is first and foremost a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. For no one is a Christian who's merely one outwardly, nor is tithing and serving in your church outward and physical, but a Christian is one inwardly, and tithing and giving ourselves back to God first and foremost is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. You see what I'm getting at here? This passage is for us. We find ourselves here with this warning, this warning from Paul. Beware of dead orthodoxy and moralistic religiosity. Instead, how's your heart? Do you have a heart that loves Jesus? If you don't, let me encourage you to begin to pray and just ask God, would you take my hard heart and would you bring it to life? Give me a heart that loves Jesus. Father, I would pray this for all of our people this morning. I would ask that you would make this true of all who are here. Maybe there's one here who does not know you. They're, they're, they can blatantly say, I'm just checking out what this, thing, this deal is. They have all kinds of questions. Would you give them a heart that loves Jesus? And Father, others who maybe have been raised in church all their life, but like those Jews of old, uh, we can drift and we can just be, rely upon our own goodness. And we're living, thinking that we have your favor because of fine people that we are with our morality and our religiosity. And we are in the same predicament as the absolute outright Christ rejecter. Give us eyes that can see a heart that can obey, a mind that understands where we stand before you. For those who are standing in false security or outright rebellion, would you open our eyes so that we may come to you in humility and repentance and know your Son as our Lord and Savior. In his name I pray. Amen.